0: You know, it has been said that repetition is the mother of all learning. And I agree completely. And those of you that are parents can probably agree wholeheartedly that repetition is part of your life, right? That you, you tell your kids over and over and over to do the same things, and it seems like, okay, are you listening to me? I already told you more than once about that. There's no wisdom in that. And so it's kind of like a little boy in our, our, our little compound that he loves to visit our home. a Little nine-year-old kid, friends with Joshua, and he's a very active, very hyper little boy. And he has taught my children something that I wish he hadn't taught them. But but they they played this game called Frog. It's not very creative, but but they all kind of they squat down and put their feet between their or their hands between their feet rather, and then they jump down the stairs like face first. Hopping down the stairs. And I watched that with just this incredulity. Like, I just, I can't believe what my eyes are watching. And it's like, stop. Consider the wisdom. Nothing good will ever come about hopping like a frog face first down marble stairs. Not, it's not good. In Spanish, no es bueno. <laughs> However, I have to tell them again, okay, guys, consider the wisdom and your, your decision there. And as parents, we do that. And repetition really is the mother of all learning. We have to hear the same truths over and over. We have to hear the gospel proclaimed over and over. And, and we have to preach it to ourselves every single day and read it and keep reading it and keep rereading it and keep praying and keep pursuing. And not just once, not just on Friday mornings, but all the time. And so let's repeat, let's review briefly where we've been the last few weeks in our teaching series called Redemption. It goes through the book of Exodus. And so thus far in the book, this is repetition to remind you where we've been, is that so far we see that the Israelites have grown in from a small clan into a very large and mighty nation with many people in Egypt, and the king then enslaved the people of God, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, had become slaves by these evil taskmasters. But God heard their cry from their slavery, and God promised to free them, to redeem, to liberate them. And He raised up a man named Moses. And He called him to go do the impossible, which was to go and speak to the king, the ruler, the god of the world is superpower, Egypt, and tell him to release the slaves. And then we see last week that Moses obeys God. He goes to Pharaoh and says, Let God's people go. And the Pharaoh says, Oh, they can go work harder. And he makes it even worse for them. And he makes them make bricks without straw. And we learned last week that oftentimes circumstances can get even worse. And you're trying to follow God and you're obeying his word and circumstances can actually get worse and not better. And yet, God still has a plan. And there is always hope in the midst even of great pain and disappointment and suffering because we have a redeemer and Moses is foreshadowing, pointing to the redemption that we have in Christ. And Exodus sets the pattern for redemption that we still experience to this day. So this is the story of God's salvation, not a story of people that lived a long time ago. And so the theme of the entire book of Exodus, we should know this by now, is that God has a plan to save a people for his own glory. That's what the book is about. God has a plan to save a people for his own glory. And so the main idea for today, if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 7. And as you're turning there for today's text, I'll give you the main idea of this text, and then we'll begin talking about it a little bit more. And the main thrust of Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 all the way through chapter 10, verse 29, that is actually one episode, it's one story, so I know it's lengthy, I'm not going to read it all today, I promise. I know you're getting nervous. Oh, no, he's just not going to start reading. It's already lunchtime. But I appreciate your patience. I won't read it all, but that is the the narrative. I would encourage you on your own time to go back and read that. Maybe today or this week. It will be very helpful for you. The main idea is that God's supremacy is displayed through judgment and mercy. And so God's supremacy is displayed through judgment and mercy to God's sovereignty, his eternal power, his wisdom, everything that makes God supreme, God's supremacy is revealed through judgment, but also through mercy. And so our God is absolutely supreme. He is matchless. He is a class all by himself. He is perfectly holy. He is all-powerful. He is morally perfect. He is the sovereign king and judgment and mercy. These two characteristics flow from his glorious character of who God is. God is a judge and God is merciful. So let's see how he displays both of those in redeeming a people. First, let's look at judgment. We'll look at mercy in a few minutes. And so first, let's look at judgment. Let's begin reading in Exodus chapter 7. Let's backtrack just a couple of verses from last week to remind us of this section. Exodus 7 verses 4 and 5. And then we'll jump to verses 8 through 13. So Exodus 7, 4 and 5 say, this is God speaking to his servant Moses. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring them out of the people of Israel among them. And so God is making very clear that, that Pharaoh is not going to listen. He will not. God is not surprised. Pharaoh will not allow them to leave. But he's going to have great acts of judgment in order to liberate his people. This is critical. Let's now read verses 8 through 13. So God has said, he's not going to listen. I'm going to enact judgment, and then he'll let them go. And then verses 8 through 13, you have now the first encounter, the first standoff, the first struggle or battle, if you will, between Moses and Pharaoh, verses 8 through 13. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when the Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself the working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their their staffs, but still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is far more than a struggle between Moses and the sorcerers, these occultists of Egypt. It's far more than a battle between Moses and these men. It's more than that. This, which you see, is a struggle between the kingdom of God and Satan's kingdom of darkness. The serpent of old. that serpent that deceived Adam. And that defeated Adam. And that now is ruling over God's good creation. This is what happened. Satan is now ruling. He is the prince of the power of the air. And so what you see here is a new representative because the first one, Adam, represented God and failed. Now there's a new one. His name is Moses. And he now represents God. God has called him to speak for him. He represents God's people. He speaks for God. And now there's this new representative that is once again battling the serpent. You see, this is a foreshadowing to what is happening spiritually, what will happen one day Finally, when the true and final and ultimate representative, Jesus Christ himself, who is the final Adam, the final representative, will defeat the serpent. He's going to crush his head and crack some skulls. He's going to smash Satan, and he's going to cast him into the eternal lake of fire. The glorious king, Jesus, will be victorious. He has been sent from God to accomplish this. This is redemption. And so what you're seeing here with Moses is pointing to a far greater reality. It is pointing to the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross and accomplishes in the lives of his people through his spirit every day when people repent and believe in the gospel, and make Jesus their king, and are transformed to be worshipers of not the serpent anymore, like Egyptians worshipped, but of worshiping the true king, Jesus. This is amazing. This is God showing us his plan of salvation. He is judging Satan. He is judging the evil Israelites. He is judging sin and death itself. And so Jesus of Nazareth is the conqueror, and he does it through judgment. That's how he does it. God's judgment displays the fact that he is holy. God is morally perfect. So because he is completely morally perfect, he must and he will judge. If God failed to execute judgment over evil and sin, then he would stop, he would cease to be a morally perfect and holy God. And we know that God is holy, and so he will be consistent with who he is, and he will maintain his holiness and justice by enacting judgment over evil and over sin. And what you see right here in this introduction, this preview, you know what this is? This is a trailer before the movie. That's what this is. This is a preview of coming attractions. Right here, what you have is an embryonic form, the gospel that is foreshadowing to Jesus. And so you have then the same thing being repeated with the next 10 miraculous signs, these 10 plagues. Now, a few of you call it plagues, but I can't say that I'm American. And so I'm going to just say plagues. And so I'm sorry if if you're European or Australian and you're going to harass me later, I know. But I call them the 10 plagues. So we'll just get past that point quickly and move on. So you have these 10 miraculous signs is what they are. God is showing who he is in judging the evil Egyptian gods, these evil false idols that people have in their hearts. God is judging them through these ten miraculous signs. And so these he calls a great acts of judgment. So what does he do? He changes the Nile River into blood. He makes frogs come out of the now stinking river, and they are now covering all the people. and are in their homes, and they're all over, them, their beds, there's frogs everywhere. And then after that, what happens? Gnats come out from the dust, and they're covering people and animals. And then the, the fourth Plague is flies, swarms of flies. That's like us in the zoo, right? There's like, there's none this morning. It's so weird. I haven't batted one fly away. But that's that's what it is. And so you have these flies that are covering everything, and it's horrible. And then God sends a, He strikes all of the livestock to die. And so He sends this disease. It doesn't say, but a pestilence it says. And so you have all of these livestock. Horses and cattle and so forth. And they die, but, the, but only the Egyptians' cattle die. And then boils break out on the Egyptians where they have these sores and it's just miserable. And the kids are having a good time in there. I like that. Learning about Jesus. And then hail comes down and anything... Or anyone that was left out in the field, any animal, a person, is killed because of this this supernatural hail that came down, destroying the crops. And then whatever survived, whatever few crops weren't destroyed by the hail, God sends locusts, and they eat whatever is left. And then darkness, it says, that can be felt. That's how God describes it, a darkness that is so dark that it can actually be felt comes upon the land of Egypt, and yet there is light in Goshen where the Israelites live. There is light for God's people, and the ones who worship the serpents are in darkness. And what you're seeing with these ten plagues, these miraculous signs, is that the Egyptian buildings that they worshipped, that they would erect to display the glory of the Pharaoh, the god of Egypt, are left in ruin. And their cattle are dead in the field. Their economy is in shambles. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is dropping. The NASDAQ is plummeting. Their economy is in shambles. Their crops are devastated. The Lulu has no food on the shelves. There's no food. There's no work. There's no crops. There's no businesses that are open. The economy is collapsing. It is devastated. This world superpower is left as a barren wasteland. And it's God's judgment. And the people's bodies, Are literally wounded because of God's holy judgment. And God spares the Israelites and comes down hard with a holy and a right judgment upon the Egyptians and on their false gods. These plagues are demonstrating God's sovereignty. They're showing his supremacy that he is God and he alone is God. And he leaves world superpowers like barren wastelands to look more like a war zone than anything else. And God does this for a reason. There's a very specific reason why God is doing this. And if you read the text, we don't have time this morning to read all of it, but there's two phrases that are repeated over and over in every single account. In one form or another, these two phrases are expressed. And the first phrase is, God says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. By this you will know that I am the Lord. He says that over and over and over. The reason for the plague is that you will know that I am the Lord, that there is a God in heaven, and I am Him. There's only one, and I'm God. So He's revealing who he is. So he's revealing his glory through these plagues. People will know that he is God. And there's a second phrase that is used at the end, the last sentence of every single plague. Go back and read it, you'll see it for yourself. The last sentence after every single plague, the last phrase that's in there is But the Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So God is revealing who he is through this incredible disbelief, of his power and glory, in this case, in judgments, and the Pharaoh's heart is left hardened. By just sign three, his magicians get it. They say, hey, this is a finger of God. And Pharaoh says, no, you guys are crazy. It's not the finger of God. He refuses to humble himself, and his heart stays hardened. I want to read to you just a few examples of this to give you a taste of this. Exodus 7, verse 17, this is after the first plague. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with this staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. And then verse 22, same chapter. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So the Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You go to chapter 9. Now you have the, the fifth plague of livestock dying. Nine. And then you go into verse 13, where you have the seventh plague of the hail. Verses 13 through 14, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this I will send you all my plagues on yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And you go to verse 34 and 35, same chapter as that plague ends. But when the Pharaoh saw that the rain and the and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of the Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. We want more. We go to chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. This is the locust. This is the eighth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I am doing among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me, Let my people go, that they may serve me. How long will you persist in your arrogance and not submitting and humbling that there is one God and you're not him, Pharaoh? But how does it end? The last three verses in today's text, 27 through 29, chapter 10. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then the Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. We'll look at the next paragraph and what God does in response to the Pharaoh's obstinance in revealing his glory through judgment. So you see, God's revealing who he is. And the response from Pharaoh is refusing to worship God. And so these plagues are showing his sovereignty through judgment. God will not share his glory. We have to understand he will not share it. Any rival God that we prop up, this is for us, okay? This is not talking about Pharaoh. This is talking about ECC off-island, all of us individually. When we prop up gods in our own heart. When we choose to bend the knee to something other than God, God can't stand it. He hates idols. He wants all the praise and honor and glory and all your allegiance and all your affections. He wants all of your heart. He's not going to share it. Because He deserves it. Because He is worthy. Because He died on the cross for your sins and offers you forgiveness because by the power of his word he created and sustains the world and so in creation and in redemption both god is showing his worth and we are to respond and anything that robs god of his glory is an idol and he will not stand he will war against it he will judge every single action every single thought that's ever been sinful god will judge and he must judge because he is holy And we all deserve his judgment. So God reveals his supremacy in judgment. But number two, he also reveals it in mercy. If you read this text in its entirety, what you see is absolute, remarkable mercy. Great mercy. God does not judge his people. He doesn't. And we'll see this next time. They deserve it. The Israelites are not innocent. They're just as guilty, just as idolaters as the Egyptians were. The, The Israelites aren't the good guys, and Egyptians the bad guys, and so God smashes the bad guys and saves the good guys. That's not what this is at all. They're both bad guys. They're both sinful. They both have idols, both rob God of His glory, both won't submit to Him. The difference is that God showed mercy that they didn't deserve by sparing them from His judgment. But you have to understand that God was also showing mercy to the Egyptians. Because even these plagues, these miraculous signs and wonders were meant to do what for the Egyptians? To see that I am the Lord to recognize that there is a God, and I have my idol. The Egyptians had the opportunity to renounce their idols, to kill their idols, and to worship the one true God. They were given the opportunity, and we'll, we'll see this in later in the Exodus when they actually leave. A lot of Egyptians did kill their idols, and did trust God, so that, that there was a mixed group. And So some Egyptians did recognize God's glory, did see that he is merciful in revealing that their gods are false. And so God was being merciful even to the Egyptians and saying, Will you repent and put your faith in me and make me your God and give up your idols? Mercy. It's mercy. When God calls us to give up our idols and to worship him, it is an act of mercy. But we can be just like the Egyptians, that God reveals who he is, he displays his beauty and wisdom and glory to us, and yet we choose our idols instead. We can be just as guilty as the Egyptians, and as we'll see later in Exodus, just as guilty as the Egyptians. We are no different. God desires all the glory. He desires it, and he also deserves it because he alone is God and glorious and infinite and perfect. And so when I'm talking about God desiring worship and how we're created to desire him, I want to read to you a quote that I found this week. The person who said isn't even a believer, but it's an insightful quote by someone that is a psychologist, but he's so close to truth, if you would focus it on Christ, he says, we remember what we understand. So "So we remember what we understand. We understand only what we pay attention to. And we pay attention to what we want. Following his line of thinking, he's saying that we only remember what we actually comprehend. And he says that we only understand the things that we actually are engaged in or really paying attention to. And we only do that, we only give our attention to things that we desire And he's so close to the truth, but he doesn't apply it to God. He applies it to whatever you want, you know, that your heart desires. But what he's missing and what the Bible reveals to us is that our hearts were meant to desire God. He made us for himself. You have been created, specially crafted, and chosen for him. You exist to please God. You exist for his pleasure. That's why you exist. And we have to remember that and pay attention to him and have our hearts engaged in him and seeing his beauty as revealed in the gospel. And the more that our hearts are gripped by his beauty, the more that we're going to want him, to desire him. You see, God delights in what he does. Everything that God does in creation and in redemption, he likes it. Why does God do it? It makes him happy. It brings him joy. Why did he make you? Because it makes him happy. It brings Him joy to create and then to redeem. But it's up to us to respond to God's revealed glory. We must respond in worshiping Him and finding our delight in Him, our pleasure in Him. And so the appropriate response to God's revelation is worship. The Egyptians received God's revelation in these ten signs But they refuse to worship. God reveals himself to us through his word. And we are to respond with lives of worship. So if you are living to please God, you will live a satisfied life. This is important. If you are living to really please God, you will be satisfied. If you are living to please yourself, you will not be satisfied. You won't. But here's a problem. Our hearts are so corrupted and so difficult to even understand. Our hearts are just so wicked. And so here's here's what can happen to us. We can be like the Egyptians that we see it and refuse to bend the knee. And we want to keep delighting in finding a joy, our comfort, our significance in our idols. The root of idolatry is pride. And every one of us have idols. We all do. It wasn't just the Egyptians, not just the Israelites. It's the person sitting in your seat, sitting on the stage. Every one of us has idols, and the root is pride. We want to elevate ourselves and be the God of our own little world. And so at our core, because of sin, we are self-centered instead of God-centered. So that's the human problem, is idolatry. Pride, where we want to be like God, like Adam and Eve wanted to be. And so, idolatry is being self-centered and not God-centered. Have you ever heard phrases like this? Have you ever heard, oh, Maybe you've said it. If you have, don't raise your hand, okay? Have you ever heard or said something like, How can God allow this bad thing to happen to me? Or have you ever heard or said, I don't care what the Bible says. This is what I want. Or have you ever heard, maybe said something like, um, why hasn't God done this for me yet? Or maybe you've thought or hope not said out loud, but maybe you have, I don't know. If God wanted me to stay married, why would he give me him as a spouse <laughs> or her? If God wanted this impossibility of actually staying married, He's giving me someone good. Because this this person next to me in bed is just not cutting it. And there's so many more. I just thought of these few, but if you look at the heart, if you distill it down to what is the heart of these objections and of these complaints that we can so easily fall into, you, you know what we're actually thinking? We're saying, I have my rights. And God up there has an obligation to work within my right to give me the things that I want and when I want them. And anything that God does or allows that requires faith or anything that God does or allows that might be uncomfortable, we say, no, no, that can't be from God. There's no way That this challenge could be from God. Really. Is it possible. That God is allowing. This challenge to come into your life. To reveal. The idols that are in your heart. That you are turning to. For significance and joy. And pleasure and meaning. You see God is telling a magnificent story of redemption. And then he out of mercy. Here's the key. Mercy says, give up your idol, worship me, and I will give you the privilege of being part of the story of redemption that I'm, that I'm telling in the world. I'll redeem you, and then you come and tell others and see their lives redeemed and transformed as well. But see, so here's the problem with us. This is, ah, oh, our hearts are so evil, is we approach God like, like if he was a commodity in the stock market, or like if he was some sort of an investment opportunity in the stock market. And so as long as God is performing well, we'll keep him around. I like this. I like this investment. This God, he does, he's performing well for me. I'll keep investing. I'll keep going to church. I'll keep praying. I'll, I'll keep investing in God because he's performing well for my portfolio. But as soon as God doesn't perform the way we want him to, I'm going to trade him. Sell, sell, sell. I don't want God anymore. This, this stock is underperforming. I'm going to get some new stock, new investments that will pay better dividends. And we want God around as long as He's performing according to what we think He should give us. And then in so doing, we make ourselves God over our servant. And we twist things around but this is how we get hooked into this because satan is a counterfeit he's a fake he gives cheap imitations just like you saw with the plagues okay well even before that in in the preview showdown where moses turns the staff into a snake what what do the other magicians do They also replicate that. The power of Satan, they're able to replicate, and they also turn their staffs into snakes. But what does God's snake do? It swallows up the other snakes. It shows that he is more powerful over the other snakes. It shows that Jesus has swallowed up sin and swallowed up death on the cross. And so these counterfeits won't do And you see that with the first two signs as well, that they replicate, but on a small scale. God does it on a big scale. So Satan doesn't create, he counterfeits. He's an imposter. And so he comes to you, and he, he will lie to you, and he will say to you, delight in this sin. Do this. It'll bring you joy. You'll find comfort in this sin. It'll deliver. It won't deliver. It can't. Deliver. It's not God. It's a counterfeit. It's a fake. It won't deliver. Only God can deliver. Only God can satisfy you. Satan comes with his lies and he makes us think that if we will give ourselves to our idols, then we will find peace and joy and meaning and purpose. And their lies from hell where Satan is headed and where people will go if they don't repent and believe in the gospel. Which is why, as a church, I'm so passionate about seeing people believe in Christ and about planting more churches, because we need more of them. They're proclaiming the gospel, so that we don't see people that will go to hell. Instead, we'll see them repent and be transformed and worship the one true God and have an eternal hope and have the forgiveness that we've experienced. But when talking about idols, it's tricky. It's tricky. It's really hard, and here's why. Because there's two levels of idols. There's surface idols, and then there's heart, deeper idols. A surface idol is things like sex, and drugs, and work, and relationships, and eating, and shopping. These are all idols that people turn to, that they give themselves to, in order to find some sort of joy, or meaning, or satisfaction. And all of us can do these things but those are merely idols that are on the surface. There is something much deeper. There are four primary heart idols. There are four of them There are the primary, deeper heart idols. The first one is power. The second one is approval. The third one is comfort. The last one is control. Power, approval, comfort, and control. Those are the four primary idols that all of us lean towards worshipping one or two of these, and then we use these surface idols to then worship, to find satisfaction in the deeper longing. And so I'll pick sex, for example. You may have someone that uses sex for approval. They're hooked on sex. That is what they do. That is their idol. That is, their, that is the issue, right? But no, sex is just the surface. There's something much deeper that would push... That that person for sex. What is it? She wants approval. But then you have another guy who also is hooked on sex. That is his idol. But why does he do it? Not for approval. It's for control. He has sex with women to control them. Not, it's not about the sex. It's about control. So the same surface idol, sex. For one person is approval. The other person is control. Either way. There's an idol that's deep inside that that person is trying to worship, find meaning in, and then they use the surface one to get there. Take work. Work can be an idol. For one guy, work is an idol because it gives him comfort. Good paychecks, comfort. Work, idol, the deeper idol is comfort. But for someone else, it's not. It's power, and their work, they love their work because of the power that they have over other people. And so at the root, they're worshiping the God of power, but they use work. The so point is the many examples, but that's enough to give you the idea that all of us have our surface idols that we use to then worship to find meaning in the deeper heart longing, and you were created to find that meaning in Jesus. When you are worshiping Christ, you trust in his power. You don't need power because Christ has power. You don't need approval from others because you have God's approval. You don't need comfort in other things because Jesus is your main source of comfort. And as far as control, you let God control your life. And you give up the idol and you let God do what he wants to do with your life. And what is the result of really worshiping Jesus? A satisfied soul a satisfied soul that is passionate to reveal his glory, to tell others, to go forth. He brought about his mission, making disciples. But it's about worship. It's about worship. And God reveals his incredible glory, his wisdom in creation and in redemption. He does it in both. And he does it in judgment And he does it with mercy, being merciful to us and saying, will you please give up your idol and turn to me? And you see this in the cross. The cross of Christ is where you have God's judgment on display. God judged evil and sin and he poured out his wrath on Jesus. Your evil, my evil, he poured it out his judgments that he must uphold, that he will uphold on Jesus, and he judged sin with Christ crucified. He upheld his holiness, and yet the cross shows mercy because God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die in your place. And so God judged evil while showing us mercy with Jesus on the cross. Have you experienced it? Have you really experienced God's mercy? If you haven't, than you can today. All you have to do is ask God to forgive you. Repent of your sins. Put your complete trust in Jesus, and you'll experience what we're talking about this morning redemption, forgiveness. If you are a believer, the question is does your life reflect it? Does it really? Will you please pray with me? Father, we thank you. For you are a judge and you are holy. But you are also merciful, and you show us love, and we thank you that this story in the Exodus points to the ultimate reality fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who endured your judgment and showed us mercy. Thank you, Father, for being consistent with who you are and being our God and for revealing yourself to us. I pray that you would help us to be a people that are passionate about letting others know that you are the Lord as we read in your word in Exodus. I pray for anyone in this room that is currently talking to you, grappling with or wrestling with these truths, that they would repent and believe in you and be transformed and have a satisfied soul. May we all do that as pursue you, Jesus. We thank you. We praise you. We give you all the glory for you deserve it. And we pray it. In name of your son.